0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. We join me in prayer. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would actively work in in our midst this morning, though we are not together for this one week. We are, again, split up into our homes. We know that this is is no barrier for the work of the Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would meet with each of us, that you would, again, actively work in each of our lives, in each of the homes represented in this church, that the Word of God would be brought to bear on the people of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, so we admit, I admit, at the outset of this sermon, my utter and complete dependence upon you. So God, would you, would you be pleased to work through this sermon? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel... Chapter 7 is where we will pick up our study. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there comes a dramatic point in the story when the white witch and her supporters tie Aslan to a stone table. Having mocked and muzzled him, they have also shaved his mane The white witch then kills Aslan while Susan and Lucy look away. The story then unfolds the scene where Lucy and Susan approach the limp body of Aslan. They remove his muzzle and kiss his face after they hear a loud crash. Lewis writes... The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All the colors and shadows are changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Oh, oh. Oh, cried the two girls rushing back to the table. Oh, it's, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around. There. Shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Well, friends, that is a dramatic and wonderful scene. Lewis's skill as a writer is on full display, and our imaginations are led to behold something truly amazing. I love reading that passage over and over. But I also remember watching this same scene in the movie version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, I might be in the minority here, but I don't know that it was any better or worse to see the scene uh, rather than read it. It was just different. But it was still glorious hearing the crash Seeing the silhouette of Aslan framed by the stone pillars with the sun shining behind him. Hearing him speak and watching his mane blow in the wind. I share this story with you because it illustrates something about the text we'll study this morning. Daniel 7 brings us to the end of the narrative part of this book and introduces us to the apocalyptic section. David Helm explains, in essence, storytelling gives way to movie watching. And many people prefer movies to books, something more overtly visual and vivid. In fact, many of us simply prefer picture books. Helm continues, apocalyptic literature is meant to unveil. To pull back the curtain on the unseen transcendent world and its role in bringing this present world to an end. In other words, friends, Daniel's vision will communicate important truths about God, his sovereign rule, his judgment, his orchestration of real historical events to bring about a specific outcome, namely his outcome. So the rest of this book will use symbols and pictures, some very strange. But it will use these things in order to explain how God has acted and how he will act all according to his good and sovereign purposes. This is one of the undeniably creative ways God communicates with us to reveal rich and wonderful details that we wouldn't otherwise know. Our text begins. Look with me at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. I want you to notice a couple of things right off the bat. This is the first time we are reading about a vision that Daniel has received. Uh, So far, we've only encountered other people's visions that Daniel interpreted. Second, we have taken a step back in time. King Belshazzar was the subject of chapter 5. Remember, he was judged by God after a, a divine set of fingers delivered a message to him during one of his parties. Chapter 6 moved on from Belshazzar to King Darius, but again chronologically speaking in chapter 7 we're taking a step back. Now in this vision Daniel sees four great beasts, all different from one another, now, that's in verse 3. And then in verses 4 through 6 Daniel describes each of the beasts. The first was like a lion with eagle's wings, the second like a bear, the third was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the fourth is described in verse 7 as terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. The vision of these strange beasts is interpreted in verses 9 through 12 where we are introduced to a very particular scene. It's the scene of a heavenly courtroom. So look with me at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Friends, this is a scene depicting God's judgment. Look at verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So think about some of the key terms we see in that Section of verses, destruction, fire, dominion taken away. In Daniel's vision, these kingdoms have met the righteous judgment of God and they have been dealt with severely. Following the core scene and the subsequent judgment, the text shifts again from judgment to the one who ultimately brings salvation. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold... visions began with four powerful beasts each beast is unique but ultimately subject to the sovereign god of heaven when they appear before the righteous judge they meet their end and their destruction makes way for the reign of one who is given authority by god himself to rule over a kingdom what does the text say a kingdom of peoples from every tribe nation and language This kingdom will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. Notice Daniel's response to this vision, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Well, then comes the interpretation of the vision. Now, I want you to understand that it's not my goal this morning or aim to give you every possible interpretation of every detail. But I do want to give you enough to understand the main point of what this vision means and what we can learn about God from it. So let me zero in on three points from the interpretation of this vision with some applications sprinkled in. The three points are simple, they're actually divisions in the text. First, the four beasts second, the Son of Man, and third, the Everlasting Kingdom. First, the four beasts, second, the Son of Man, third, the Everlasting Kingdom. And again, please understand that the interpretation of this vision includes some passages that are and have been passionately debated. But again, my aim this morning is not to enter into those debates. The first point is actually one of these debated passages, the four beasts. As you, as you might imagine, there's no shortage of theories about what these beasts represent. But what follows is what I think is the most likely interpretation. Verse 17 These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. This angelic messenger is referring back to what was explained in verses 2 through 8. So I want you to look at that text again with me. Look at verse 2. Daniel declared. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things." (coughs) These four beasts are four kings, or more precisely, they are representative of four earthly kingdoms. They are actual historical kingdoms. Some of the details given to us about the beasts here in Daniel 7 directly correspond to details of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams back in chapters 2 and 4 based on the imagery of gold and the reference to a lion and an eagle, both of which Nebuchadnezzar is likened to earlier in this book, even the mention of the eagle's wings being plucked off, referring to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, this first kingdom is likely Babylon. Notice the second beast is like a bear, raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Babylon was replaced by the Medo-Persian kingdom, a kingdom that was attacked and devoured a kingdom that attacked and devoured its enemies. The third kingdom is like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It also had four heads. This is likely a reference to Greece, perhaps even a very specific reference to Alexander the Great, who swiftly conquered the known world by age 32. The fourth the most horrifying of the kingdoms is a reference, it seems, to the Roman Empire. One theologian writes, unlike the first three, it is not likened to any creature or combination of creatures. Daniel describes it first in general terms, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Then he draws attention to its iron teeth and the way it devoured broken pieces and then trampled whatever was left under its feet. Here is orderly, monotonous, ruthless expansion. Friends, if this is a reference to Rome, as many would suggest, history supports this description as it recounts for us the unspeakable evil perpetrated by the Roman Empire. In reference to verse 20, this particular scholar continues, 10 horns appeared on this monster, verse 8. Suddenly, Daniel's gaze was drawn to another horn, a little one, coming up from among them. Three of the original ten horns were plucked out before it. We are probably not intended to trace specific identifications for these numbers. Ten could be a symbol of completeness here. Three, in this instance, could represent a sizable segment. What fascinates Daniel, however, is the little horn. It has, quote, eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. For all its inordinate power, this horn represents an individual. For all its real humanity, it is dominated by pride and self-glory. Now this leads us to a powerful application for all of us from this strange vision. Look back at verse 2. Verse 2 is where we were first introduced to the beasts. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Notice, Notice that at the beginning of Daniel's vision, there is this picture of chaos and instability. Winds stirring up a great sea, and out of the sea come four great beasts. This is a very effective picture painted for us. When godless rulers who are proud and power hungry seek to advance their own name and grow their own kingdom by whatever means necessary, this always creates a sinful and devastating mess. Instead of earthly power and wealth being used constructively for the protection of the innocent and weak and the flourishing of families and of learning and of society in general. When earthly power is used for selfish gain, it will always leave a wake of destruction and oppression in its path. In fact, reform scholar Sean Michael Lucas makes this point so well. He writes, These beasts represent characteristics of the kingdom of men. The strength, power, And speed that can be brought to bear by these kingdoms in order to make their rule invincible. These beasts were grotesque and frightening. These beasts were able to devour, tear, and destroy. Even more, these kingdoms represented the terrifying rule of those who disobey the true king of the world. When I read that explanation this week and I was thinking about it again, I I thought this isn't something that simply was true, but think about places right now on earth that are being led, that are being ruled by evil and wicked and treacherous and self serving leaders. Friends, with this in mind, go back to verse 2 once more. What does it say? The four winds of what? Heaven. This reference to the winds of heaven is a reminder that it is ultimately God who is stirring up the deep and exercising sovereign control over the very things that are actively rising in opposition to him. But of course, this is not a new idea in Daniel, is it? Remember Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is where the story began. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God gave his own people into captivity. Again, in chapter 2, a text that we've referred to many times when Daniel is offering praise to God, He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Friends, what a reminder of God's power. Amidst the chaos of the world, with all the uncertainty that surrounds us, God is not disengaged. He isn't sitting back, wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen next. No, he is sovereign over everything, every king and every kingdom. And he is working according to his own will to bring about his good purposes. Just like God's people in captivity, no doubt wondering about his power asking is he is he really in control can he really deliver us but well, perhaps perhaps some of you have found yourself asking similar questions lately this text reminds us that the answer to all of those questions is yes right, we have we have a tendency to tack on the word enough to certain questions right is is he, I know God is powerful. Is he powerful enough? I know he's sovereign. Is he sovereign enough? I know he's loving. Is he loving enough? Is he gracious enough? The answer to all of those questions is always yes. So in this vision, we have, as David Helm reminded us, it's like a movie. And in this movie, a great drama is taking place. And the story could be summed up this way. God is sovereign over everything that is happening. And even in the midst of evil rulers in evil kingdoms, those who worship God have a reason for hope. This leads to the second of our three points, the four beasts, now the Son of Man. Following the courtroom scene, where any doubt about God's sovereignty and the victory of his righteous rule is removed, we come to verses 13 and 14. Look at, look at them again with me. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so who is this one like the son of man he's obviously a very important figure he comes from heaven but he's also associated with mankind The Ancient of Days. God himself gives this one dominion and glory and a kingdom of all people's nations and languages. And they will all serve him. This kingdom is no temporary fixture like the earthly kingdoms already mentioned. It will never pass away and it will never be destroyed. I love Sinclair Ferguson's summary of this part of the vision. He writes... When we remember that just before he was taken up in the clouds to the throne of God, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We are left in no doubt as to the identity of this one, like the Son of Man in Daniel. It is all the more significant that this title is used in the New Testament almost exclusively by Jesus in referring to himself what has been true of no other kingdom. Certainly not of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek, or, or the Roman Empire. Well, it's true of Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. It shall not be destroyed. Friends, this apocalyptic vision in Daniel reminds us of the basic truths of the gospel message. Jesus came to earth fully God and fully man to live the life we could not live and die the death we deserved to die. He bore the penalty for our sin upon himself. He was buried and then raised again to life. And now he reigns. And he rules as an everlasting king over an everlasting kingdom. And who comprises that kingdom revelation gives us a glimpse it's every tribe every tongue and every nation brothers and sisters in the confusion and uncertainty of the present world we need this truth our future hope is as sure as the death and resurrection of jesus It takes us back to the point I shared a couple of weeks ago. That is, in this life, no matter what happens, there is no reason for the Christian to panic. Well, this leads us to our third and final point. The four beasts, the Son of Man, finally the everlasting kingdom. Verses 23 through 27, we arrive at the climax of this vision. The fourth kingdom is exercising its destructive power. Then a little horn emerges from the ten, and notice verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High, he shall wear out, or we might say persecute, the saints of the Most High. And he shall try to change the times and the law. In other words, this leader is a picture of total rebellion against God and total disrespect for the people of God. But look quickly at verse 26 this wicked and mocking ruler, who has acted as if he has unlimited power, will have his dominion taken away, he will be consumed and utterly destroyed. And then what? Well, no matter how powerful an earthly king is or how vast his kingdom becomes, well, every earthly rule and every earthly kingdom will come to an end. And when the kings and kingdoms of earth have all passed away, what will be left? (coughs) Look at verse 27 and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now I want you to listen to this carefully. I want you to catch this back in verses 13 and 14. God Himself gave to the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Father gives to His Son dominion and glory and a kingdom that is everlasting. It will never pass away, it will never be destroyed. But now look carefully again at verse 27. Who is given this great and eternal kingdom? In verse 27. The saints of the Most High. So, imagine you're a worshiper of God and you're enduring persecution at the hands of a wicked ruler who hates God and wants to destroy his people. Imagine knowing that God has promised a deliverer who will come and conquer the greatest enemy and in victory he will reign forever. Imagine clinging to that promise but seeing no sign of its fulfillment. In fact, when you consider the world around you and the obvious evil and utter hatred of God, you begin to wonder if your faith has been misplaced. In the midst of your doubt, imagine hearing from a prophet of God that in spite of what appears to be a hopeless situation, God is in absolute control, and he will win He cannot be defeated. Every kingdom will fall but his. But there's more. Not only are you given reassurance that God will ultimately win, but for all those who believe in him and worship him rightly, everything he has will become yours. Listen to Tom Schreiner explain this staggering truth. The saints are included corporately in their leader. Jesus is the son of man, the king, the stone who represents the saints. The saints triumph insofar as they belong to him and are united to him. His victory is their victory. The son of man will crush the head of the serpent and all the ferocious and beastly kingdoms that oppress human beings and advance evil. So brothers and sisters, please, please get this. The promised victory of the Son of Man is also the promise of our victory in the Son of Man. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, So consider the hope of the gospel in light of this text. The people of God during Daniel's time who are losing hope in the face of evil opposition. They're being persecuted. They're given this glorious prophetic picture of God's power and his certain victory over all enemies. Now we, we as the people of God, in the midst of whatever we are facing, right? Pandemic. Job loss, social upheaval, struggling marriage, overwhelming fear about the uncertainty of the future. As the people of God, we are not simply given a prophetic word about something that will happen. No, we are offered unwavering assurance by something that has happened. The serpent was crushed. Sin and death are defeated. Christ has risen. And he is presently, at this very moment, ruling and reigning. And he will never be defeated. So if you are in him, brought into union with Christ, I can't think of any greater reason for hope. Any greater reason for confidence. This certain victory is yours. Because you are in Christ, the King. Let's pray together.